Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Amy Nordrum, news editor at IEEE Spectrum, an award-winning technology and engineering magazine based in New York City. Amy also is a frequent guest on Public Radio's Science Friday with Ira Flato. Amy writes and edits news stories about computing, artificial intelligence, power and energy, biomedical engineering, and telecommunications. Her favorite stories cover elements of business and technology. We talk about her career and the importance of science reporting. Amy, you've been a, a science journalist uh, for the bulk of your career, if not all of your career. Who is your audience? Yeah, right now I work at a publication uh, that is tailored to professional engineers in all different kinds of fields. But that doesn't mean, you know, they have technical training, but it doesn't mean that they're experts in necessarily the field that we're writing about. So the publication is IEEE Spectrum. Uh, and the you know the power engineer that's reading about a new wireless technology uh, doesn't necessarily know everything that they need to know to get the gist of this new development that we're covering. So in a lot of ways, it's also similar to writing for a broader audience in which you need to define your terms, you need to remove uh, jargon, and you need to try to translate these developments in technology and engineering uh, for people who are outside of that specialized field. How do you pick the topics, though, uh, before you even get to the writing? I, mean, I would assume that there are only a limited number of topics. Yeah, I mean, finding good story ideas continues to be like one of the hardest but most important parts of my job. So we do cover, you know, the areas of technology and engineering uh, that include like robotics, biomedical engineering, uh, telecommunications, power and energy. So we have different fields and disciplines that we know a lot of our readers are interested in. And we have clues from past stories about what topics within those fields they're interested in. So for example, we know like battery development is a huge hit with our audience. They're interested in new kinds of batteries, new battery chemistries, and what's next in batteries. And so we'll try to take cues like that and then, you know, narrow our search a little bit and look for developments in those fields. And I often, you know, rely on people that I've talked to for previous stories to just ping me with an interesting development or a new idea that they see that they think uh, is something that our readers might like to hear about. Now, I know you write, but you also edit and you manage. Um, so does a freelancer come to you and pitch an idea? Do you go out to freelancers that you know cover a particular topic? How does that work? Yeah, it's a little bit of both. Uh, I definitely am doing more editing these days. So I'm working with a network of 
like a dozen to two dozen freelancers who are pitching stories. Many of them have worked for us before, and so they know all about us and what we're interested in. And they'll, you know, they'll pitch stories along those lines. But we're always trying to find new, uh, different freelancers who write on, you know, new and emerging topics. So uh, a few years ago, maybe that was like blockchain technology. Now we're, you know, we're increasingly interested in cybersecurity um, coverage. And so, we'll, you know, I'll need to kind of find those people. And so it's a combination of just trying to ask people that I know who they might know um, who write on these topics and just searching around for them through professional associations or through uh, online writing groups uh, that I'm a part of. And then, you know, if you have a specific topic you want covered, sometimes there just is a journalist who's, you know, all over that beat and you can reach out to them and say, hey, would you, you know, here's who we are. Um, would you like to, to write for us? We recently had an interview somebody into the shipping industry, right? Yes. Uh, I mean, that's an example of what you're talking about. Yeah, Maria Gallucci yeah. is uh, one of the freelancers that we've uh, been working with for a couple of years now. And so, you know, she uh, her background is environmental reporting, but increasingly, um, you know, getting into energy and, and technology topics as well. And so she did a feature on us for us about uh Puerto Rico's grid recovery after Hurricane Maria, and also uh, another one about cargo ships, which are some of the you know dirtiest forms of transportation out there, converting ideally to more uh, clean and sustainable sources of fuel. Don't take this question wrong, but <laughs> I know you're a serious publication, but is there clickbait in, <laughs> in this kind of journalism at, at all, or is it all sort of uh, – educational journal kind of writing? You know, I think no matter what you cover, how serious you are, at the end of the day, you're writing for people and people are multidimensional. They like to have fun. They like to laugh. They like to be entertained. And they also, you know, like to learn and ad advance their careers. So we try to give people a little bit of all of that. So one like fun feature that we have um, on our site that's uh, written by our robotics reporters is called Video Friday. And it's just this compilation of robot videos that different robot researchers send every week. <laughs> and they put together this hilarious narrative and they like embed these photo like these videos of robots doing various things um, you know some of which are successful some of which are falling apart or crashing and it's like a lighthearted you know it's you're learning about robotics research and who's active in robotics labs around the world but it's really like a lighthearted fun look at um, <laughs> these robots being built and, and all the hurdles uh, that you run into when you're trying to do that. Since you've been a science reporter, uh, you've worked from various publications with various different audiences. You've covered a pretty wide range of, of topics, have you not? I have, yeah. I, I was, um, you know, through a series of internships because that is one of the ways that you you kind of break you into get the in, right? industry, as you know. <laughs> That's right. Yes, I did six internships actually um, wow. while I was doing a master's degree in, in science journalism at New York University, and so I interned at Scientific American, Inside Climate News, Psychology Today. You know, those are all very different readerships. Scientific American covers all different areas of science. Um, you know, Psychology Today, you have a lot of people particularly just interested in that discipline. And Inside Climate News is, uh, you know, is similar where it's it's kind of almost like IEEE Spectrum where it's a niche publication with a very focused emphasis on um, one topic and a, a, an audience that is interested in that topic that finds their way uh, to them. Have you found a niche of what you like the best? I still don't have a good answer to that. It's interesting because a lot of journalists do specialize. Uh, I mean, I'm already specialized as a science technology, you know, health journalist. Um, but within the field, you know, I 
I really like learning about like all different topics. And so I've covered health, I've covered climate change, um, now technology and engineering, and I find them all equally fascinating. So I, I uh, talked, had a conversation with a reporter not too long ago, and her, her uh, statement was great about what she does. She says she covers the science of health and the business of medicine. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought, what a great description. Yeah, actually, that's a very good description. I and mean, that's sort of what you've done, right? You've talked about the science of discovery, but you've also talked about the business of of transforming that into product. Yeah, my last feature I wrote was actually about uh, two uh, hard drive companies, Seagate and Western Digital. They did a lot of very basic fundamental research that uh, they're now trying to parlay into new commercial products, and they're right on the cusp of trying to make that transition. And it was one of the most interesting assignments I worked on because I first needed to learn like the physics of how a hard drive works and how data is written to a magnetic disk. And then I also needed to learn about these new techniques they were developing involving lasers and microwaves to write more data to a disk than ever before. But then I also needed to figure out, you know, are these commercially viable? And is one of these strategies better than the other? And what do analysts think about this? And how are the companies planning to put this out? And who are the customers? And what do they um, think about these two different approaches? So, you know, it was very multidimensional as a story. And I uh, loved every bit of reporting that piece. That brings up a topic of how you prepare. You said you had to do research certainly before you could even break ground, I imagine, on the story to understand the, the basics. But, but how, as a science journalist, do you keep yourself from getting hoodwinked by, <laughs> by either bad science or flim-flam people out there trying to promote something as science? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, you know, I don't have a scientific background or scientific training. I'm, you know, as journalism major at Ohio University and have been uh, focused on science journalism all the way through, but am not, um, you know, trained in any specific discipline. So it is something I have to be careful about and watch out for. And there are uh, some, you know, kind of minimum standards. So you always um, look for published peer-reviewed work when you can. You always get a second or third or fourth opinion. So the more people I talk to, the more uh, developed uh, my own knowledge becomes about you know this this particular article or study that came out, and the more I'm able to kind of contextualize it. So the first person I talk to might be really excited about it, but then you know the second and third have questions or point out something that I, you know, I wouldn't have necessarily picked up on um, just reading you know reading about the research on my own. So I try to do as much research as I can initially and uh, go into it kind of with an open mind, but then also, you know, be sure to ask those questions about like, what are the limits of this? And, you know, how important is this really? And how soon, how much will it cost um, to try to, to try to give readers uh, that context? Because I do think it's, it's really important. Especially in the pharmaceutical area, right? How, how much is this going to cost? When is it going to be out? <laughs> Where is it in the, in the approval process? Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, even understanding the difference between preclinical research that's done in animals and then, you know, a phase three um, clinical trial. Just trying to, um, you know, look for meta-analyses uh, rather than just single studies that report like in, you know, one update uh, based on a certain set of variables. So, you know, there are ways that you can kind of navigate through it. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a big part of the job is trying to figure out what's worth covering at this particular moment in time and why. And, you know, if we do cover it, what important context do we need to wrap around it for readers to fully understand the picture here? 
interesting among all of the topics that I read that you were looking at. One one is artificial intelligence. That's such a broad topic. Mm-hmm. Do you have a subset of interest within that broad topic? Uh, well, we, you know, at IEEE Spectrum, we've covered it in a number of different ways. So we have, uh, for example, a biomedical reporter named Eliza Strickland, who has done this whole feature called AI versus Doctors, because she noticed that a lot of a new literature on artificial intelligence in the medical field was, you know, pitting artificial intelligence tools against doctors and trying to diagnose different things or, um, you know, look at an x-ray and figure out what was wrong with it uh, or look at a series of conditions and trying to arrive at, you know, the next best step. So she kind of uh, saw all these individual studies coming out and was able to kind of put them together in like an interactive tool that gives you a sense of like where, you know, AI is making the most progress and then kind of where uh, doctors are still, you know, winning out and where that human ability to diagnose and take a a large variety of factors into consideration is still important. I thought that was kind of like a clever way with like a topic that can be very hypey to really ground it and like, you know, where is the real action happening here? And it tends to be like more specific tools uh, rather than like general diagnostics that, that artificial intelligence is making, you know, more progress in. I know artificial intelligence is being used more and more in the criminal justice system and Mm -hmm. uh, with judges and police officers, but the main complaint there is bias. Right. Uh, Do you address that when you're looking at stories about artificial intelligence, whether it's in the medical field or some other field? Yeah, we have covered algorithmic bias for sure uh, at, at Spectrum. And you know, it's it's the classic black box scenario where a lot of these programs and systems uh, that researchers are developing to do different things or make different decisions or introduce efficiencies into various processes uh, aren't totally transparent, even to the researchers who are creating them. So we've also reported uh, some on techniques that researchers are trying to use to like get at what weights and variables the artificial intelligence tools are using to make various decisions in an attempt to kind of break those black boxes open, because that's really the first step to try to being able to try to audit them or try to um, verify that they aren't, in fact, uh, introducing bias uh, into these decisions. And that is a really important step that's not fully there yet. And and what is your ethical role, though, as a journalist? Are, are you there to check them? Are you there to... <laughs> to uh, uh, Mm-hmm. Explain that a little bit. I'm not articulating it very well, but I think yeah, you I know, know where you I'm going. It's really hard because, um, again, like even the researchers who create these systems in a lot of cases don't fully understand why they're making the decisions they are or what weights and, and balances are playing the uh, having the most influence on the outcome or the, uh, the ultimate uh, designation. So for a journalist, it's really difficult, almost impossible to first get a hold of any of the actual code. And then, you know, once you do, would you be able to interpret the code or the algorithm? Like, I certainly wouldn't be able to look at that myself. I would need to take it to someone else with expertise in that field to do sort of an external audit. So what we do try to report on is uh, continuing research in these areas to, to to develop ways to just do an audit or to take a black box and break it open or to engineer AI tools in the first place that are you know more transparent and more open and certainly cases of overt algorithmic bias as well just to to bring those to light uh, for readers to consider so you know you can find a way of reporting about it um, that helps people understand the problem and the set of solutions that are being pursued uh, and you know lean on others to some extent to be able to actually you know identify and tell you when one of these systems is going awry. 
I would be remiss if I didn't talk about Science Friday since you're uh, <laughs> one of the uh, frequent guests on Science Friday and, and – we always take pride <laughs> in that here. I love that show. <laughs> here at Ohio University. Uh, talk about that show because we as distributors of that show, we think we have a grasp of what our audience is regionally. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the audience that you're told for that show nationally? You know, the way that I know the most about this actually is sort of on an anecdotal basis where people that I know from uh, living in, you know, places between the time I graduated and now just reach out to me and say, I heard you on Science Friday. And it's a lot of individuals reaching out who I know are not reading my stuff on, you know, IEEE Spectrum because it's a more, you know, technical focused publication. Um, so that actually to me has really opened my eyes to how broad of a distribution that show has and how it's a lot of people who, uh, by my impression anyway, are kind of going about their everyday lives. They have it on in their offices, in their cars. And uh, it's sort of, you know, it's like uh, not necessarily something that they're trying to um, like learn, you know, an in-depth investigation of something, but they're definitely, you know, interested in science and very curious about it and want to know what's going on and have questions about it. And to me, you know, that is like a a whole different audience and demographic that I wouldn't ever be able to like connect with in in my current role. It had to be a big leap for NPR originally to say, okay, we're going to take two hours of our primetime <laughs> afternoon programming mm-hmm. and devote it to science geeks. And I'm so glad that they did. And, you know, we say science geeks, but I think you'd be surprised by how many people are. You Absolutely. Know, it's like so many people and it, people I wouldn't necessarily expect or. Um, or they'll pick up on something, uh, a particular thing that will interest them. Right. Uh, and yes. so uh, they'll they'll follow that up, and they may mm-hmm. not listen every week, but they pick up on things. Yeah, I, I have a lot of fun with like just talking about something and then hearing what people, you know, say when they reach out to me and what they enjoyed about the show. And the researchers that I contact, what you know, because when I talk about pieces on the air, I I try to talk to the researchers ahead of time who uh, were responsible for the work to make sure I get the facts straight. And they're often very excited. They've heard the show. They know about the show. They listen to the show, you know, when they were growing up or earlier on in their careers, and they're very happy to finally have, uh, you know, their work on on Science Friday. Talk to us a little bit about how how your guest appearance works. I think people always want to know behind the scenes. <laughs> sure. How many weeks or days or hours or minutes ahead of time <laughs> do do they call you? Uh, what kind of prep do you have to go through? Mm-hmm. Uh, before you walk in the studio, what are you expecting? Yeah, so I usually do the news roundup segment, which is the very first part of the show. It's like a six-minute segment, and you usually talk just about some interesting science stories and developments from the week. So these can be new studies that came out. They can be new you know, space launches. They can be um, new policies that were uh, considered or passed. So it, it's really a mixed bag, but you, I basically need to kind of walk in with four to five stories that I'm ready and prepped to present on the air um, to this live audience. So it starts on Monday when I usually get a request, uh, you know, are you available to do it this week? And uh, then I would pitch a couple of stories. So I'd usually pitch five or six stories that I think might be good for the show. Uh, Do that by Wednesday to the producers that are 
helping me with the segment. They call me Thursday morning. We run through the different stories. Usually I've you know, read the studies or prepped uh, by talking with researchers, uh, working on these different projects by that point, uh, and can you know, give a sense of what each story would be about if I were to talk about it. And then they'll give me a, a final list of here, we, you know, this is the lineup that we want. These are the stories we think would be most interesting in this order. And then you know, on Friday afternoon, I walk. It's just two blocks from my office in Manhattan. It's actually um, in the CUNY Graduate School in the basement of their building. That's where they record, and uh, just walk over and you know sit down across from Myra, and then we kick off. And uh, we've had him on our program before. Uh, obviously, someone who is amazingly interested in science, <laughs> but also has the ability to ask just the right question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really love have loved working with him because, you know, I'm usually very nervous. Honestly, it's live radio. I'm trying to right. keep all these <laughs> this information in my head and I'm trying and to keep it straight. And <laughs> Yeah, and I'm trying to not, you know, say too many ums. So it, it's pretty nerve wracking. And he's very, um, just a very supportive, calm, cool presence. And, you know, he'll be about ready to do this two-hour show, but he's so relaxed, and he'll just be talking about some other thing he just read on the news or that came up that week. Uh, so, it, it, you know, he's just uh, such a, a wide reader and uh, has so many different interests. It's always fun to just talk with him. It's, it's interesting that his style and ability is to take very, very complex issues, translate them for a lay audience, but it doesn't seem like he's dumbing it down. No, I don't think he loses. The he nuance. doesn't pander to right. to the lowest common denominator of his audience. Yeah, I feel like that is part of what keeps people coming back, honestly, because um, you feel engaged, you feel like you're learning things, you feel like it's fun, you feel like it's interesting and informational, but it's also like giving you details and it's specific and it, it has nuance in it, and um, you know he's bringing these things to light. And kind of taking you on that journey with him as he's like, you know, asking and, and learning these things uh, from researchers or his guests that are speaking about it. So uh, I definitely really enjoy that about the show as well. And I, you know, I think in general with science coverage, you should not um, talk down to, you know, talk down to your readers or listeners. Obviously, I think, um, you know, assume a smart audience because most people, you know, they want to, they want to know. And uh, the extent that you can give them that, I think that uh, people really respond to it. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication is designed to bring forth the people who bring forth knowledge by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means it succeeds. The Scripps College of Communication is where one generation of thought leaders and storytellers opens the doors for the next. Educating and inspiring each other, bridging disciplines, forging connections, pushing beyond the syllabus and beyond limits. And because all participants belong to a far-reaching community of achievers, they reach higher and further not just ready for change, but hungry for it, demanding that ideas be heard, perspectives shared, and visions realized. This is how the Scripps College moves the world forward. This is what knowledge demands, and this is why the Scripps College of Communications exists. To make it loud, to make it clear, make it known. 
Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. I want to talk ethics a little bit, um, and I know that's something that you're interested in. The, the average person out there in the audience, though, if they go to certain publications, they probably know that they're going to get quality, but more of the general publications. How do they know what may be an industry shill out there writing for them and what is a bona fide science writer? Yeah, I think uh, this is <laughs> this is kind of obviously an important distinction to make. Uh, you know, I think you have to look at the story, you know, how it was reported. Even if you don't know the person, usually you can try to look for a few indicators. So, um, you know, do the headline and, and uh, deck seem overstated or exaggerated in any way? Is it trying to elicit some sort of emotion in you? Um, are there, you know, multiple viewpoints in the story? Uh, are there any qualifiers in the story about, um, you know, costs or potential harms or externalities involved? Um, do they mention any limitations of the technology or uh, industry that they're covering or the commenting on? pluses and minuses then. Yeah, the context. Yeah, the context around it. Uh, just trying to kind of evaluate stories for the content that's in them. I mean, this is kind of a, um, I guess, just trying to be savvy about that as to the extent that you can. And then, you know, doing a little bit of research. So you can always, you know, search the name of a place that a blog or a publication or uh, a magazine that you're looking at to just see what, you know, what others are saying about it and whether it seems credible and who else is pointing to it. I go to reporters' names more than, than publication names. Oh, sure. And mm -hmm. see what all they've written. Yeah. And, and if I come across somebody who hasn't written very much mm -hmm. or, or it's all in one kind of genre, mm -hmm. then the alarm bells go off. That's a good technique as well. I mean, uh, yeah. And certainly if you find people whose coverage you like and trust, follow those people. I mean, journalists do change publications, but if you find them and are able to kind of um, keep connected, then that's also a good way to make sure you're getting uh, the best information on that beat or on that topic uh, that you care about. How do you use social media to drive traffic to to your work? I know that it's an integral part of what you do. Yeah, so I have my own personal um, accounts, which I use uh, to post my you know articles and stories. On Twitter especially, I'm often linking to uh, stories written by our freelancers and staff and trying to promote them on my own account as well, um, just because I know a lot of people who are interested in technology follow me and follow uh, and also other journalists and publications as well. And then we have, you know, our regular suite of Spectrum uh, social media tools as well. So on, right now, IEEE Spectrum is on Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We actually see a lot of activity on LinkedIn, interestingly. Uh, which seems like more and more in, in professional areas that, that seems yeah. to be rising. Well, it kind of makes sense with our audience. A lot of them do read our publication at work. They're taking a break from their day-to-day -day work. But, you know, Spectrum still feels a little bit like work. It's at least, like, related to their work. or you They know. wouldn't be embarrassed if the boss Yeah, in, right? <laughs> exactly. So lunch break or just for a little moment of inspiration to try to stay current. Um, you know, we see a lot of like desktop activity during the day. So um, a lot of engineers are in groups in LinkedIn. We have our own group, we have our own profile, but actually we tend to see the most activity when 
somebody who is interested in, in engineering or a professional engineer is sharing our stuff in some you know group that they're a part of that isn't necessarily ours, but um, that has a lot of people interested in the same topic. And you're looking for that group with a lot of followers to retweet your stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, that's always nice. And, you know, not just as a vanity measure, but just to be like people, you know, we're on the right track. We're producing right. stuff people are interested in. They're finding it valuable. They're finding it engaging. Do you find any ethical quicksand with social media, personal, professional? Yeah. Be- because that's a that's a perilous area sometimes. Yeah, I think um, it can be tricky. I mean, I think uh, for our social media, we're generally, you know, promoting to people that have followed us. So they've chosen to kind of sign up for um, for our content. We're not doing advertising or targeting in any way on our social accounts. Um, you know, I it's tricky because you're still, you know, you're competing for people's attention. You're trying to use um, these promotional channels to get your stuff in front of them. Um, you know, we do look a lot at page views, uh, which I know is is uh, something that can be problematic if that's all you, all you care about, or if you start to change um, your content too dramatically uh, to to try to get that. But you know, you ask about clickbait. We're not, you know, we're not changing that dramatically. I think we use it to sort of inform in like an appropriate way. We hope uh, and guide us to some extent, but not to change kind of the substance of, of what we're doing or, or what we're all about. What other ethical issues might be out there that we haven't touched on that that you have to confront daily or weekly? Well, me as an editor, you know, every day I'm working on assigning stories and also editing stories and writing headlines and decks uh, for stories that are publishing on our site written by staff and by freelancers. And, you know, I think a lot about framing um, because I want to be very fair about it. And, you know, when I write a headline or a deck or even make uh, changes or suggestions for someone's story. I want to. I want it to be useful to the reader, but also still accurate. And I know framing is a big part of media. You know, we see a lot of headlines that are trying to frame things in certain ways to make them more emotionally sticky or um, uh, catchy. And uh, you know, there's certain metaphors that are used, like. Um, one that I've, I've seen a lot lately, I was recently editing a story on China's private space industry, and we hear a lot about the, the space race between like China and the United States, and that's in a, a lot of headlines right now, actually, too. And I find that metaphor kind of problematic because, um, you know, a race has like a clear winner and loser, and I feel like, you know, if we... And a beginning and an end. And a clear usually. end, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, if China and the United States both develop robust private space industries and, you know, public space exploration programs. I don't think that that's, you know, a, a loss for anyone. And there is no clear end. This is a continued, you know, mission and effort. There's lots of different competing priorities and goals within it. Um, and it, it creates and contributes to this us-them mentality, where if they win, we lose, you know, and if, if we win, we beat them. So I, those kinds of things I'm... I uh, try to be quite careful about and not uh, repeating, even when I see them in other other outlets. Journalism is a competitive field. Do you have competitors? You mean at IEEE Spectrum? Yeah. Certainly we do. We have, um, you know, nothing quite exactly mm-hmm. like us, uh, but we have certainly a lot of, you know, many more than uh, in the past probably Tech, tech, you know, technology publications and also just right. general um, publications that are increasing their technology coverage uh, for, for lots of good reasons. So, um, you know, I wouldn't want our competitors to go away. I think more information and more coverage out there is a good thing. And Does it spark you and, and your staff? And 
Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm often comparing what we're doing to other outlets, um, you know, trying to figure out what's best for our audience, what makes sense for them. Not everything that competitors do is applicable to us or makes sense for us. But and how vice did versa. they get that story? <laughs> oh, yeah, that's always. So this is one thing that I love. I think it's Bloomberg that puts out their annual envy list. And of course, you feel that as a journalist, you're like, oh, where, you know, how could I have gotten that or. But, you know, ultimately you cheer them and, you know, it's it's a colleague or it's somebody who, um, you know, did just really good, good journalistic work. So you're always happy to see that. And even if you have like a, a pang of envy. Um, but, yeah, we're, you know, we're covering certain disciplines in certain ways that probably uh, not like there's no direct competitors. But there's a lot of places like MIT Tech Review or Scientific American or Wired um, and you know, they're doing lots of excellent technology coverage on many of the same topics. Is scientific coverage better now than it ever has been or not? Oh, that's a tricky question. Um, I don't know. I feel like, I hope so. I hope we're making progress. I hope we're learning as we go as an industry. I hope we're being kind of humble and admitting kind of when we're not so great and need to improve. Um, I know a lot of journalists that I've worked with, science journalists, are uh, – very eager to do the right thing and try to get this as right as possible. And um, I find that very heartening. So I'm very optimistic. And I, you know, I know there's a lot of cynicism about media and it, and also just about um, the news industry. And I do feel like, on the whole, very optimistic and that we're headed in a, a good direction, more information for more people, um, even if we're not getting, you know, everything right all the time in terms of how we execute it or how we structure our newsrooms or how, you know, how we um, enter this like digital world at the same time as, uh, you know, doing all the print stuff that we're still doing. So last question. Give us a preview for all of us out here in the heartland and, and lay people. What's the next big science thing that we ought to be following oh. or see mature? Yeah, this is, um, man, there could be so many different answers to this. You know, I am really excited. Maybe this is just because we're uh, working on a special issue about space this year, actually, at Spectrum. But I am really excited to see what happens uh, with both space exploration and also uh, the increasing number of companies that are working in low Earth orbit. So putting satellites up to do different communications projects. Uh, you know, satellite internet has like a really bad rap because in the past it's been super slow and sort of like your last resort if you're in the woods and right. need a <laughs> need a contact. But there's a lot of companies working on doing it much better with many more satellites, and they've gotten so cheap now to produce and to launch. There's a lot of potential there. So I think it'll be really interesting to kind of follow this like resurgence in the space industry, uh, both private and public, uh, for exploration and for commercial development in the next few years. Did you go crazy this last week with the picture of the black hole? That was pretty wild. Yeah. Because, I, you know, I, <laughs> people just seem to react to that. Very strongly. Yeah, it got, it was everywhere. It I mean, was. it was all over the place. And, um, you know, it's powerful. I don't know if it's because of the image itself or because of the human achievement aspect of capturing this thing we've never really been able to show before. Um, but there were, you know, the scientific community was so excited. There were so many press releases and conferences about it. And then uh, to see this huge run of coverage and then to see it on the front page above the fold of you know, the New York Times, and um, it's it's really cool to see science in the spotlight like that. A real boost. <laughs> yeah. Amy, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you.
Today, we've been talking with Amy Nordrum, news editor of the award-winning technology and engineering magazine, IEEE Spectrum. Spectrum is produced by WWB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available at the NPR Podcast Directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to one of your podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about any of our podcasts or have suggested topics for us to cover, please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Spectrum will be taking a brief summer break. This will be the last edition until September. However, come fall, we will be back with more exciting and fascinating conversations with people who have amazing stories.